from Revelation 3, 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, uh, Lord's love. I hope you're doing well this morning, especially as for some of you that are in elementary and high school. Uh, it's spring break uh, for you this week. And for parents, I hope it's a yay, uh, as well as you're trying to find out uh, maybe some plans in childcare uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, but, uh, but it's also good to see you, even though we uh, lost an hour of sleep uh, last night. Uh, but God is still good. I've been praying, especially, uh, pray for me that God will give uh, extra measures of grace as I <laughs> lost one hour and that the message would be somewhat coherent uh, this morning. Well, have you ever found yourself uh, to be in a situation where you thought you were doing everything right, uh, but still felt like something was missing in the end? Well, I I remember feeling this way when I was training for my first uh, half marathon. I would never... Think, thought, thought I would call myself this, but being an avid runner now, that I never thought I would run that much altogether because growing up, that's something I really didn't enjoy. But when I was training for, uh, when I was running, uh, trying to run for that first half marathon, I was trying to follow a strict diet and I tried to run every day, but it still felt like something was off. I wasn't really getting much faster. I wasn't accomplishing the goals that I, was, I, I thought I was going to accomplish. And then I came across this uh, blog on running. I know I was reading about running and how I could become a better runner. And there's a question in there that said this, I had to ask this, are you just running every day or are you training? I was like, wow, are you just running every day or are you just training? I'm like, well, what's really the difference? And I needed to think about that for a moment. And I realized that I was really approaching my training as another thing to do, that it was just a task. Uh, it was just on my agenda. Uh, it was uh, on my checklist. Instead of actively seeking out ways to improve, uh, and, uh, improving ways uh, to, to run a little bit faster, a little bit better, a little bit str- be a little bit stronger, to really push myself, I was just going out and going through the motions and just doing the training, uh, trying to do the training, thinking that I was going to improve uh, by doing so. So I was trying to be disciplined uh, instead of training myself to be disciplined. Does that make sense? There's a little bit of a difference there. And this can be really the same for us in our spiritual lives as well. That often we think that we're just trying to be closer to God. We're trying to walk closer with him. We're trying to, trying to be closer uh, to God. Instead of thinking, hey, instead of trying, maybe we can start training and having that mentality that, that there's an end goal here, that I'm moving closer towards Jesus in the everyday, in the, in the uh, choices that I make every single day. And we can go through the motions of attending church and praying and reading our Bibles and still feel like something is missing. 
We can still, we can try to be disciplined without intentionally training and growing. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to explore a little bit uh, in this passage as we continue on in Revelations, what it looks like to stay spiritually steady rather than going through emotions. And the big idea for us this morning is this. You can go to the next slide for me. Uh, staying spiritually steady requires awakening, acquiring, recollecting, and repenting. I try to make it a little catchy. It's kind of hard to remember now that I read it again. <laughs> but staying spiritually steady requires awakening, re- acquiring, recollecting, recollecting, and repenting. You see, in the passage today, we'll see five commands the church needs to do in order for us, for the church, uh, church in Sardis here, to come back alive. Number one, it's to wake up. Number two, it's to strengthen what remains. Number three, it's to remember what you received. Number four, is to take hold of it. And number five, is to repent. And I'm going to go through those five uh, as I try to succinctly put it all together this morning. And as I mentioned, we're in a series uh, called the Book of Revelation's Future in Focus. And we've been learning what it looks like to see the future in the present, a reality now, to help us understand what's going on right now. And if we remember, it's 96 AD, as we read this text, it's 96 AD, and the church is being persecuted all across the Roman Empire. And the apostle John, he is exiled on an island called Patmos. And even though he's well into his 80s, even though he's locked away, uh, God still has a plan for him. That God is still using John to make a difference in the world. And this time, by giving him a vision, giving him windows and glimpses into who God is and what he is doing in the world, even though all this persecution is taking place. And today, it's the fifth of seven letters uh, addressed to the churches, and the church is Sardis, which was the largest of the seven. It was magnificently built, too. Uh, it laid on top of a plain in between a, a couple mount, uh, two mountains. And this plain was, uh, this city, this Acropolis was surrounded by three cliffs. That was 1,500 feet, a uh, sheer cliff that was protecting it. So it was hard to invade uh, this, uh, this, this city. And then on the side that you can approach it, where the main entrance is, is a pretty steep slope, which made it hard for armies to bring in uh, their troops and whatnot. And and the passage today, you read that it has a lot to do with life and death. And and, and why is that? Well, Sardis, it was infatuated with life and death. It was infatuated with death and immortality. Uh, Church historians even note that the people of Sardis had much of their religious life focusing on the fertility cycle and bringing life out of death. Like that was the rhythms that they had. There was even a sacred hot spring that was about five kilometers out from the city that was connected, they believe, connected to the God of the underworld, where they will go there and to worship and to seek, uh, seek life and to conquer death. And maybe that's why Jesus says, and, and use this illustration, that even though you think you're alive or you have a reputation of being alive, that you are actually dead. A strong warning uh, for anyone that would hear that, uh, especially for the church then. The church wasn't one that you would normally call dead, though, because it was actually quite vibrant, as some historians would say. In the words of Daryl Johnson, he writes, it was a very active church, in fact. All kinds of events were taking place. All kinds of committees were meeting to discuss the p- and plan and strategize. The church in Sardis was well-organized. Doctrine was sound. Sacraments were celebrated regularly and orderly. The church in Sardis was the, was the largest of the seven. Services were well attended. It certainly was the wealthiest. But dead, says God. 
very dead. What does Jesus mean, though, that the church is dead? There's a couple interpretations of this. You could be saying that this church never finishes anything it starts. That's because maybe they rushed into decisions, never truly discerning the will of God. They made decisions thinking, uh, they made decisions based on what they thought was best. Uh, as George Card calls this, it's a half-heartedness kind of Christianity. He calls this kind of Christianity content with mediocrity. That's what the uh, church in Sardis uh, suffered from. It's just mediocre. Uh, they, they, they weren't finishing what uh, they believed God called them to do because they didn't have full conviction that, that that was God calling them anyway. So it was this unfinished or incompleteness uh, that led to Jesus saying that this church is dead. And it's unfinished or incomplete, not because of the quantity, again, because they were busy doing a lot of things, but in terms of quality, as in terms of quality and not, not, not discerning through what it means to do things well for God. And the idea here is that they met everyone else's standards, maybe in that culture, in that society, but, but it fell short uh, of God's standards. Or Jesus could also be saying by dead that the deeds or the activity of the church were not deeds and activity of God, the activities of God at all, that they're just doing what it is that they want. So their activities and their deeds were dead. Jesus also says here, I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Or another way of reading this could be, maybe Jesus is saying that everything that they're doing, even though they're doing all these great things that, are, that they think is great, they're actually missing one great deed, the great deed, which is making disciples, as some uh, scholars have, have noted, that what they're doing, even though the church was growing, everything was bustling on the inside, they were missing evangelism. And they were missing making uh, disciples and making people turn their hearts from the ways of the world into, uh, and towards Jesus. After all, as we read in this text, uh, the lampstands, they exist for the reason of giving light, giving a light to the world to burn brightly in darkness. So I just give a very quick survey. It could be a few reasons why Jesus says this. And the warning is clear that as a church today, I, I wouldn't as a church, uh, as, as Lord's love, want to be called this as well, right? That Jesus comes and says, hey, you're doing all these great things, but you're actually dead. There's no life happening inside. So for us to turn around and to turn towards Jesus and to have life, there are three things that we need to remember. The first thing is we stay spiritually steady by avoiding spiritual apathy and waking up from the spiritual slumber. So avoiding spiritual apathy and waking up from spiritual slumber, found in Revelations 3, 1 to 2, and the text says this, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, seven represents completeness. So here Jesus holds all things in his hands and nothing gets past him. We're all accountable to him one day. And he says this, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now as we read this passage, and as I think about my own spiritual life, and maybe your own spiritual life and the life of the church, imagine 
a person who is driving a car with a flat tire. Pastor Howard and I were uh, driving to a retreat a couple days ago, and my uh, low uh, air pressure tire gauge sign turned on. Uh, as I was driving on the highway, I'm like, eh, you know, we should be okay. Right? No, I, I, the, next, the next time, I'm like, okay, the tires are flat. I should probably pull over at some point so we found the next gas station. You see, when the, the gas, when the, the tire is, is flat or there's a hole, you can still drive for a little bit, but you can't go very far before you start causing damage, right, to the car. Some of us have been there. We didn't notice that the tire was flat and we kept driving and then next to me, no, it's all shredded and we're stuck uh, there on the side of the road. You see, this is similar to what happens when we neglect our spiritual life. And we don't look at the, the parts where we have the warning signs are coming up, that maybe there's spiritual apathy happening, or maybe there's certain parts of our spiritual life that need some focus. It's also terrible, uh, and we know this in Vancouver and maybe other parts uh, of the country even more, but it's terrible as we're driving, not, with a, not only with a flat tire, but also straight up into potholes, right? Like, you know, <laughs> it's not amen, I don't know. <laughs> but in a sense, when you drive, you hit, you hit a pothole, and that just affects your alignment. It could cause your tire to be flat. Well, I, I would argue that what potholes are to a car is the effects of spiritual apathy to the spiritual life as well. There's certain things in our life that if we leave neglected and we keep hitting them over and over and over again, it's going to affect us in the long run. So here Jesus, he holds the seven churches in his hands, meaning all churches are accountable to him. And he's saying, what is your life like? What's going on spiritually? And in fact, as we read through the passage and all the letters to the churches here, this is one of the places in the seven letters where Jesus speaks a little bit differently to the churches, where the normal formula of what they're doing right is also actually their weakness. So it's kind of a uh, it's uh, encouragement with a kind of insult <laughs> wrapped up in, inside of it. Uh, the one positive or their strength is in their name. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're actually not. That's what Jesus' point is. They have a reputation of being alive, for doing a lot of things, but they're actually not alive. Or in the words of Grant Osborne in his commentary writes, it is a sad thing when the only accomplishment or deed of a church is what it names itself especially if the reality shows that that name to be a lie, as it is here. Their past deeds gave them a reputation among other churches for being alive for Christ, but their present deeds show, a, show quite a different picture. So Jesus sees through all things. He sees through the facade. And the church was dead because though they were busy, they ultimately neglected their relationship with God. They're doing a lot of things, but they're neglecting the relationship with God. And as I was reading this text, I was thinking to myself, do I recognize these kind of rhythms? Do I recognize the signs of spiritual apathy? Do I recognize the common potholes that my spiritual life hits or comes across? Perhaps for us, it could be we stop praying altogether and we stop reading the word of God regularly. Maybe we start prioritizing other things in life as good as they could be, uh, as good as they are, like things like our career, things like certain relationships, or things uh, like, our, like our hobbies, those things end up being most of our focus, taking up most of our time instead of a pursuit of God. If this goes on long enough, if this goes on long enough, it will lead to this spiritual ap apathy, this spiritual numbness, or as J.I. Packer writes, 
in his book, A Quest for Godliness, spiritual numbness is the greatest danger that any church can face and the most difficult challenge that any Christian can confront. The often of times, I think this is, I, I, I think, okay, this is my hunch, that this is what plagues the Western church so much. For, for, for many of us, that it's not the persecution on the outside, though that's changing, I think, as well, that we see more and more outright persecution of the church, of Christians, for, of our faith. But I think it's the spiritual apathy that attacks us from the inside, where we become spiritually numb to the things of God. And that's the way that Satan makes the church ineffective for the kingdom. And the spiritual apathy, it may show up because there's sin in our lives that straight up block us from experiencing God, the sin that takes hold of us and creates this barrier. And then we feel this guilt because Satan takes that and says, see, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a follower of God, but why is this happening in your life? And this guilt and this shame keeps brewing and growing inside of us and this barrier between us and God and us and other believers grows more and more and more. And before we know it, it goes down this really slippery path where we just need to be numb because we don't want to feel we don't want to feel the disappointment. We don't want to feel the shame and the guilt, and we start hiding. But the way around is actually to bring light into the, in, into the darkness and to reveal it and to bring that before God. And God feels dis, uh, and then before we know it, God feels distant, and it seems like our prayers, they're not heard, and they're not answered. And we grow further and further into disinterest in spiritual things. And this spiritual apathy or this spiritual numbness is real. It's real. We've all gone through it, or maybe we're going through it at this moment. It can manifest itself as a lack of enthusiasm for the things of God, maybe an indifference to, to sin itself. Maybe it's a loss of joy. It's reduced empathy. It's just generally difficulty connecting with God. Maybe some of those symptoms uh, describe you, and the, the, you're wrestling with it. But ultimately, whatever it is, it's rooted in a simple neglect of our relationship with God. Everything I just said kind of can be summarized in this way. Whatever it is, the spiritual apathy is rooted in a simple neglect of our relationship with God. We become distracted by the busyness of life, or maybe we're distracted by what other people are saying instead of what God is saying. Or maybe we just think we should just start living life in our own way. And as often, I like to bring plants, a little illustration here. And maybe this will stick with you, as it helped me a little bit. That if it's true that, uh, that that spiritual apathy is rooted in a simple neglect of our relationship with God, ultimately, it's just like what water is to this plant. That many of us, and I know I'm, I'm not, not, not a plant person. There's other things I could kill plants. But what I do know is that water is essential. So when we stop, when we stop, when we neglect the things of God when we neglect what is most important to our spiritual life, it's like me not giving water to this plant. But when we take care of ourselves and we read our word, when we pray, when we're in community, and when we seek the things of God, it is like water to our souls. It's simply me watering this plant. Every time we come before God, when we take care of our spiritual life, it's like a little bit more water. Sorry, Jess, I don't know if that's too much. Uh, I hope it should be okay. God will sustain this plant. So uh, it's important that for us to water our souls, but we often go around watering other things or taking other things, uh, and, and taking other things that we think are more important in life. And before we know it, we get driven into this numbness and we get burnt out and we fade away. But God's saying, no, take care of what's most important. 
Water to plant, water your soul. Come and stay connected to me. But what's fascinating here is that even if this describes you, it doesn't need to be your future reality. That if you're feeling spiritually numb, if there's apathies in your life, you're not feeling connected to God, that doesn't have to be your future reality because no one, as you read in this text and throughout Scripture, no one can be so far gone or spiritually dead and beyond hope and beyond the grace and the mercy of our God who's able to rescue, who's able to bring back to life. But this illustration, this passage here, is to do a little bit of self-check and to see, do we recognize it? Do we see this apathy? Are we going down this path? So how do we wake up from the spiritual numbness? As Tim Keller says in The Prodigal God, spiritual numbness is the result of a heart that has become callous to the voice of God. It is, con- it is a condition that can only be healed by renewed commitment to, pr- uh, to prayer, study, and obedience. So how do we wake up? It's really going back to the simple things, the basic things of the faith. We need to prioritize our spiritual life and be intentional in drawing close to God. It's about a relationship. It's not about doing more. It's about being closer, as we've been saying, to Jesus. We need to make changes, maybe, to our daily routine by setting time aside. We need to seek out opportunities for fellowship and worship with other Christians. We, maybe we need to take a step back. A lot of times, it's not adding more. It's actually decreasing. It's taking a step back, taking something off of our plate that's hindering us from growing. Or maybe it's that unhealthy relationship or that unhealthy habit so that we can experience God in fresh ways again. The good news, again, as we read here, is that Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Even with all the deadness, there's still hope, as Jimmy, our worship leader, uh, spoke about that there's a hope that God can resurrect and God can bring beauty from the ashes. That even though the church was a shell, what remained? Well, this, I guess they still had their committees, right? They still had their routines. They still had their disciplines. Maybe they're still doing their spiritual disciplines. But whatever it is for them and whatever it is for you and for me, Jesus, he's saying those things, there's still goodness in it that can be redeemed. He's not down on structure or maybe even on programs because they're needed, right? They're needed to help the church and our spiritual lives to have some form, to have some shape. But the question is whether they're performing their function or not. Daryl Johnson, in his book, he writes this fascinating thing where he encourages the church that every five years, maybe you should take away every single program that you have and just cancel them, uh, put them on leave, and then only the ones that can prove themselves to be effective for the kingdom of God and fall in line with the vision of Jesus only resurrect those programs back. I find that fascinating. What, what if we did that in our own spiritual lives? What if we literally at this very day stopped everything that we're doing and said no to it? What would come back? What would come back? What would we see as really being vital for our spiritual lives and spurring us on towards following God, what would be left? That's a convicting question. That's a tough question. Secondly, we stay spiritually steady by remembering and holding fast to the teachings of Jesus. Revelations 3.3 says this, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. Cling on to it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. The command is 
pretty clear clear here. The instructions are clear. Hold fast. Holding fast to what? Not to the ways of the world, not to what I think is best. Holding fast to the teachings. Right? Holding fast. It's the holding fast to the teachings of Jesus. What you have received and what you have heard. What did they receive and what did they hear? It was the words of Christ. It was, it, was, it was what God has been and is saying. It's committing ourselves again to the teachings of Jesus. And it means refusing, this clinging on to, this holding fast of, it means refusing to let go of it or refusing to compromise them, the teachings, for the sake of convenience or for the sake of worldly gain. It means being steadfast even during persecution and pressure in the world. Remembering and hold it fast quite literally means uh, quite literally means keep on keeping it. That's the direct translation. Keep on keeping it. The words of Jesus, keep on keeping it. Cling on to that because the things of the world come and go. Fads come and go, but the word of God endures forever. It's, it's, it's fitting for then to the church in Sardis, and it's fitting for us now in 2023. And it's teaching of, teachings of Jesus that ultimately helps us to stay grounded, to see the world clearly. And it's not enough to say we listened to Jesus once, right? We listened to Jesus back then. I received Jesus into my heart once back, in, in, back then. I was baptized, and that was then. And it's been enough. No, it's a daily Action, a daily clinging on to. Keep on keeping it. Keep listening. Keep holding on. Never let go of it. Why, as Dallas Willard says in the book Divine Conspiracy, the teachings of Jesus are radical and demanding, but they also offer a vision of a better world and a way to live that brings true fulfillment and joy. Yes, it's work. Yes, it's a discipline. But you experience life like no other when you dive into the treasures of God. And you come out of the mind holding nugget of truth that's enough to give you life for that day. There's nothing else like it. But how do we practically and tangibly do this? And I want to suggest to you just one way today, this morning, that's so desperately needed for us. When's the last time you took a Sabbath? When's the last time you took a Sabbath? And, and by a Sabbath, I mean a true Sabbath, not just a day off from work. A true Sabbath where you reflected upon the things of God, where you sought out God, where you carved out some time. I'm not saying 24 hours even, but some time for you to sit and to rest and to be just with God. Because it's important. Think back to the Ten Commandments. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Number four, in fact, Fact check me, number four <laughs> of the Ten Commandments. As part of our Lent reflections, I've been going through this. This is my challenge for myself of practicing Sabbath truly and biblically, trying to be filled by Jesus in that time. I've been going through this uh, book, Practicing the Way, as mentioned before, as a gift to me. Uh, it's on Sabbath. And part of it is to read Dan Allender's book, Sabbath, Resting, uh, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives. And he says this, about Sabbath. Sabbath is an invitation to stop, to rest, to delight, to contemplate, to remember, to renew, and to celebrate. Sabbath is the pause that refreshes our souls, clears our minds, and awakens our hearts to the beauty and the wonder of God. So it's just not a day off from our chores, our, 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 our work, 
and the things that we do, uh, uh, things that we do Monday to Saturday, if Sunday is your Sabbath. It's not just a day off from chores, because if it is, that's what Eugene Peterson, he has strong words for this. He calls that kind of understanding a bastard uh, Sabbath. He's like, that's not a true Sabbath. That's a misunderstanding of, of Sabbath. The Sabbath day is a day where we set aside time to rest and to worship and to delight. If, I'm asking you this question. If for 24 hours, if you had no other responsibilities you had to think of at the moment, this 24 hours, what do you think of that will cause your soul delight? 24 straight hours that you can do that, and you're like, that's refreshing to my soul. That's filling to me. That's what the Sabbath day is supposed to be like for us. It's supposed to be that, the water to our soul. We avoid unnecessary work by setting time aside from chores and errands. We spend time with family and friends. We spend time feasting and enjoying uh, and connecting with God. We, we can go out in nature and, and, and creation. We do activities ultimately that cultivate a spirit of gratitude in us, that connect us with God. Maybe that's one something tangible for you, to actually have a full Sabbath. Maybe it's not 24 hours, you can't do that, but that's the bar. It's pretty high. They set 24 hours to spend time on our souls being refreshed. But many of us, we have too many responsibilities, too many things going on, that Sabbath is the first thing to go, usually. It's the first thing for us to go, and I know that full well that it's a struggle and it's hard, but if Sunday is a day for you, may it start with coming to service, not to be like, I'm filling out the attendance or I'm just coming to do this, this for, for filling a seat or to be in the building. No, that was Sardis. The point is to come and be like, I want my soul refreshed. I want to experience God in new ways. I want to see God again and to know him in fresher ways. May it start with this attitude of desiring and wanting Sabbath. Lastly, we stay spiritually steady by repenting of sins and listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the passage goes in this way. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that, that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What have you been hearing from the Spirit? What has God been saying to you? How are you seeing Jesus work in your life? Ultimately, it's not what I'm saying or other leaders or other people, really. It's really as we spend time in the Word and in prayer and as we discern together, what is Jesus saying to you? Jesus, I find this deep hope here that Jesus will never blot out anyone who actually wants a relationship with him. That's what I'm reading here. Anyone that wants true life, anyone that desires him, anyone that wants this life with him, he won't blot you out. He would grant it to you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have life. He wants to give you life. He wants you to be refreshed like this water to this plant. He wants to fill your soul. But the question is, do we desire that? Will we make space for that in our own lives? And ultimately, it comes down to this as well. There needs to be a desire for holiness, to be separate from the things of the world, to say no to the flesh, and to be set apart for God and be like, God, it's really hard, but I want to cling on to you. I want to hold on to you because you alone are life. You alone are good. And the imagery here builds 
on the major resource of wealth in Sardis, which is wool and making clothes. So he speaks right their language. So yeah, you, you make clothes, you make fantastic clothing, but I can clothe you with something way better. I can give you something that the world can never give you. So listen to me, listen to the spirit, listen. And maybe there's things in your life right now that needs repentance and you need to turn away from. And I'm praying that the spirit, not me, not my voice, but the spirit's voice will prompt that in your own life and that there'll be a repentance, a simple turning away from that. And the spirit convicts us of our sin, but it leads us. The love of God, it leads us towards repentance. It leads us back into this relationship uh, with him. As it says in John 6, 16, 8 to 11, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin, because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father and where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. When he comes, he's going to bring about he, the Holy Spirit, will, will convict us and speak to us. Or Galatians 5 uh, uh, 5, 16 to 17, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Not to do whatever you want. A way of discerning is that when I have a desire for something, just to pause. Is this of God? Or is this my own desire? Because sometimes the line seems very, very, very fine and it's very blurry and, and the enemy has a great way of making it difficult for us, just for us to pause for a little bit. As I come to an end here, Daryl Johnson, he has in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, which we've been leaning on for this series, he, has, he suggests nine vital signs of a church and of a Christian that you know that you're spiritually alive in Jesus. Number one is confessing that Jesus is Lord, meaning that Jesus is, uh, is the ruler of your life. Number two, calling the holy, sovereign, awesome, majestic creator, Abba, Father, meaning do you have a relationship with God? Can you come to God in this way? Number three, the fruit of the Spirit. Do, do, do these show up in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see that blooming and growing in your life? Number, number four, unity. Not uniformity, thinking all alike or doing the same thing, but a true unity in the spirit, that it is God that unites us and combines us. Number five is compassion growing. And number six is there growth in the church and also in your spiritual life, not in attendance or the, 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 uh, the quantity of things, but in the quality, meaning are people coming to experience Jesus? Number seven, emotion. Are you feeling emotion? Not an emotionalism, just like worshiping our emotions. But do you have emotion? Do you have feeling? Do you have passion? Because our God has passion. Our God has emotion. Our God has feelings as well. Number eight, a desire to be holy, which we just spoke about. And number nine, a willingness to die. A willingness to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. Man, are those in our lives. And it's not about being perfect. It's not about checking things off a list. It's a measurement. It's not, not, sorry, it's not a measurement. It's a, it's a picture for us to look at and to see where we're at. And I'll end here. I know I'm over time. 
Reflection questions. Maybe take a picture of this. <laughs> I found these deeply convicting as I was reflecting on this. How have I been neglecting my spiritual life? And what steps can I take to overcome spiritual apathy and grow in my faith? And I borrowed this from Craig Rochelle. Don't try, start training. Right? I mentioned that in the beginning. Don't try. This, know your training. Every little step. Not a huge step. It could be a small thing. Tomorrow, maybe tonight, so that I can remind myself to read the word tomorrow, I'm just going to leave the Bible on my desk. That's the first step. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to try to open it. <laughs> That's the second step. Whatever it is, set little steps for yourself. Number two, am I prioritizing the teachings of Jesus in my life, or am I being influenced more by the values and the beliefs of the world around me? What place does Jesus occupy in my life? Number three, am I truly listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit, or am I relying solely on my own understanding and desires? If Jesus were to take his spirit away, this is convicting, would it make any difference in our lives? If Jesus were to say, tomorrow I'm taking my spirit away from you, would it make a difference? Would you notice a difference in your life? Fourthly, when, fourth question, when was the last time I shared Jesus with another person? Number five, what specific sins do I need to repent of right now that's really keeping me from having a relationship with God? I want to end with this. The truth is, no matter how dead you're feeling at this moment, how apathetic, how far away it is, how, how, how far removed that one situation is in your mind right now, the Spirit of God has the power to revive. He wants you to experience life in Him. Whether it's physically, you feel like you're impacted and you're going through some things right now health-wise, whether it's your spiritual life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's you're wrestling with your purpose, whether it's that mistake that keeps haunting you, that past hurt that keeps coming up, whatever it is, Jesus has the power to resurrect and to give hope and to give life, not tomorrow only, but today in this very moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are for being the God that gives life, for being the God that resurrects. And God, I pray that you would give us as a people, Lord, the strength to say no to the things of the world and to say yes to you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would guard us from spiritual apathy and spiritual numbness. And for those of us that are wrestling with that, whether in the past or in the moment or in the future, God, I pray that you would re-inject in us newness, that you would give us your spirit, that you help us, you give us ears, God, to hear you speak and to hear you, and, and may, we, may we follow you and trust you for you to do what only you can do in our lives. So God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would break chains of that habit, of that addiction, of that thought, that God, we, Lord, want to walk in holiness. We want to be clothed in, in, in light. And we want, to be, we want our name to be found in the book of life when we meet you one day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.